0: This is a Culture Inject Production.
1: Welcome back, everyone, to the Nevers podcast. We have a special show for you today. So I have the honor of interviewing my favorite comic book artist, Georges Genty. So, am I saying your last name right? Is it Genty?
2: Oh yeah, that's. Uh, I mean, it's French technically, but it's never something I help anybody to. It's like Georges Genty has always been the way, but you know, the American version is Georges Genty. So that's nice. good.
1: I never knew that. Good to know. (laughs) George Sjenty is an Eisner Award-winning New York Times bestselling comic book illustrator. His first major work was on Marvel Comics Bishop The Last X-Man in nineteen ninety-nine. And for folks listening to the Nevers podcast, we'll know him as the comic book artist for Buffy the Vampire Slayer and the latest Serenity comics. Well, not latest because now there's new ones. That's a whole other thing.
2: I like (laughs) to think the the more important.
1: The more important canon Serenity comics. And um, for you listeners, this is Gina Gomez, who's hosting today. So thank you so much again, Georges, for taking out the time to do this interview with us today. I know it's a crazy time in the world.
2: Yes, very much so. For most freelance artists, this is standard for us. So now everybody (laughs) is basically getting what we do on a daily basis. I work from home, so I'm usually inside for hours at a time, not going out. So everything that has been mandated for this uh, crisis at the moment, this pandemic, this is pretty much what I do. I get out of the house just to have something to do. I don't stay in the house. And now, uh, now I have to as well, you know, we, we can still walk around and get exercise and all that stuff. But yeah, it's, uh, this is pretty standard fare for me. So I, I haven't really noticed the difference. Just right. Of, you know, when you tell somebody, oh, you can't go outside, then of course, you want to go outside.
1: And- right, right.
2: That's really been the hardest part, where you're like, well, don't tell me I can't go to the comic book shop. Now I want to go (laughs) to the comic
1: book shop. Exactly. It's like your parents saying you can't do something, and then you want to do it. So is it interesting that the world is complaining about having to stay inside, when you're just like, eh?
2: Yeah. I I mean, obviously, we understand the, the ramifications and why that actually is, but... I think there's always going to be a percentage of people who are kind of like, well, you know, they either don't believe it or this is sort of a government thing or, you know, it's it's made up or whatever. And <laughs> those people, I think, you know, they just become eligible for the uh, Darwin Awards eventually. Right. So, uh, <laughs> let them do what they do and just stay out of their way so you're not affected.
1: Especially me being in L.A., I, I drive around sometimes because I have to drop off my sister at work and there's so many people on the streets. It's crazy. It's insane
2: just kind of hanging out i mean i get that you have to go somewhere but
1: yeah no it's true they're mostly walking but no one's really they're all walking very close to each other and i'm just like ugh. Mm. every time i just want to roll down wow roll down my window push down my window and say like hey six feet but
2: you're dating your car there
1: (laughs) all right so let's get started with some introduction questions and, and it's funny, Georges and I are really close friends, so I've asked him a lot of these questions in person. So it's really interesting and funny for me because I'm going to hear this for a second time. However, it's a good refresher for me, too, because you might have told me some of these answers a while ago. So
2: <laughs> Please, Gina, let me know if I'm wrong in, in my answers.
1: Exactly. I'll, I'll quiz you. <laughs> All right. So question number one, when did you start learning and honing your craft?
2: Uh, well, as an artist, uh, I think everybody sort of starts at a young age, and of course, I was always uh, drawing, as as are most kids. I do a lot of um, I do a lot of uh, little talks at elementary schools and whatnot, and everybody in there draws. Nobody nobody sits there and goes, "No, I can't. I don't draw." Yeah, you can say I can't draw, but nobody sits there saying, "No, I never draw." Everybody draws, and I think as a young person, you draw, you draw, you draw, and my mother was very. To her credit, she encouraged me all the time. So I never stopped, whereas some people discover sports or, you know, girls or just things to take up their time. While that also happened to me, I just kept going with the art. I never really stopped. So I was honing my craft at a very, very young age. I remember drawing like little Mickey Mouse and Bugs Bunny illustrations from comic books or whatnot, and just really, you know, fascinated by, as a kid, you don't understand the psychology that you see something and you interpret it through your hand. But that idea was cool that I could actually create.
1: Did you ever take art classes?
2: Yeah, well, you know, in, in high school, you have to, uh, well, when they still had art, art courses and, and music courses <laughs> and things like that. So I did. And, and happily, you know, I always, I, I never had a big head that I always got A's in art class because I was like, well, yeah, duh, this is the one class I'm going to get an A in (laughs) all the other classes I struggled with. But I knew art class. I was I was actually pretty good at this. So I did that and went to college and took some classes. Um, I was very fortunate because I really didn't know I wanted to do comics at a young age. And I was very fortunate in college. Uh, I went to college in the 90s and I there was a teacher there who actually taught commercial art,
0: Mm. which uh,
2: they didn't have a comic um, division, but they had a commercial art division. And that's a very close uh, cousin to the comics. And he worked with Kodak when he was younger in the 70s. And he taught me so much about the print medium, which, of course, is what comic books are. And I just learned. And funny enough, that wasn't ever really a class. It was just me sitting there talking to him. Uh, And I learned so much from that one guy. I don't feel like I learned a whole lot from the courses that I took. We did have figure drawing, which was really great because it Mm -hmm. really did give me uh, an ability to hone the craft. But otherwise, it, it was such an early period and comics were still very young in terms of learning. I mean, comics had been around, of course, forever, but nobody really had it or taught it as a curriculum. You know, the Joe Kubert School was probably the only school that was really teaching it as a curriculum and something you can get a degree in. Whereas now, you know, like every SCAD college or every college has more or less a graphic arts degree or a comics degree. So
1: <laughs> so you're ahead of the curve, you know?
2: I, no, I wasn't. I just wanted to do what I wanted to do. The curve just didn't catch up in time I -hmm. I would have loved for there to have been a comic like a comic degree that I could have gotten that would have just solidified my my future because I really did waver I thought I'd want to be an actor maybe a stand-up comedian you know just all these little things had there been a comic curriculum I probably would have stayed more active and and consequently broke into the business a lot earlier because as it is I didn't break into the business until my late 20s, whereas mm-hmm. most people were breaking in in their teens or early 20s.
1: How did you keep going, even though it was difficult, that other people around you were breaking in at an earlier age?
2: Uh, uh, and I've, I've actually struggled with that, trying to figure that out. And, uh, and I look at a lot of people who do, like I know you guys are, are musicians, and, and you try to break in, and you try to do what you do, and... And, and and admittedly, some people succeed and some people don't. Some people succeed to a, a different degree. Maybe it's not what you wanted when you started, but you ended up, you know, doing something with me. And I, I say this with all humility. I just never had a safety net. I never had anything to fall back on. And my mother was always like, oh, why don't you? I don't know, study teaching or, you know, do something else. So you'll have something to fall back on in case this art thing doesn't work out. And either I was too young or too ignorant to really understand the wisdom of what she was saying. I just thought, no, if this isn't it, you know, I, I mean, I did, like I said, I I fluctuated with maybe going into drama. But the statistics of all the people working in, in, uh, in the theater and movies was even lower than the statistics <laughs> of people working in comic books. So I thought, you know, my chances are a little better if I if I do the comic thing. So, right. I, yeah, I just kept with it. I never thought, you know, what else would I do? It was always this is it when it happens, not if it happens, but when it happens.
1: Not, not a lot of people uh, have that or, or knew ever since a young age that, like, this is what I want to do. It was ignorance.
2: Yeah, it wasn't like I was smart or, you know, I was pro I had some sort of prolific idea. It was just ignorance that I couldn't do anything else.
1: Um, Okay, so you said in your late 20s, that's when you sort of started getting in the business. So what was your first paying job as an artist?
2: Yeah, my first paying job as a comic book artist uh, because I did a lot of commercial stuff and I actually worked uh, in in high school. I I worked and then a little bit after high school, I worked for the Miami Herald uh, for about four or five years. So I was really in... The print medium, because, of course, newspapers, when we still had newspapers, they were (laughs) a print medium. And this was something I was totally absorbed with because I thought, well, I don't really want to work in newspapers, but the newspaper medium is doing all the things that comic books do. So I really want to learn from this because I want to apply it to that comic stuff that I want to be doing later on in life. Um, so my first comic gig was for a very small company. They're still around, actually, but they don't print as much. Um, they were called Caliber, Caliber Press. And uh, a guy who uh, was trying to, they were trying, and mind you, this was in the 90s when image first exploded. So it was, a you know, 95, 96 when the image boom happened. And... If you look at all that image stuff, you see it's a very stylized way of working. And as I was coming up or trying to come up, I was looking at that image stuff and thinking, God, I'm never going to work in comics because I don't my stuff doesn't look like that. I don't feel like I can do this in any way, shape or form. I thought at best I might do some stuff for DC had a title called Vertigo titles for a little while. And I thought maybe I can work on a Vertigo title. But so much of comics at that time was being influenced by the uh, Image Boys that Hmm. it was tough. I mean, if ever I felt discouraged, that was it, because that was a hard, hard time for anybody who had a style other than, you know, Jim Lee or Todd McFarlane or Mark Silvestri or any of those
1: guys. Wow. So you're probably thinking I've worked so long for this and then maybe my style doesn't work.
2: No, I know isn't that just the, the rub where you're like oh my god I wanted to do this all the time and now when I'm actually at a point where I am going to do this it changes altogether, and I don't draw that way or that's just not my style and uh and anyway the the Caliber Press they had a guy who was putting out a, a superhero line and he liked my work so he uh he saw enough in it to give me work even though it wasn't very image but he wasn't he was an old guy, older guy, and he wanted to do old school as well. So it didn't have to look like image, thankfully.
1: What are your influences when it comes to your art?
2: Oh, man, that's that's such a broad question. And I'm sure every artist that you can do a whole podcast just on that. <laughs> right. Growing up, I, I was very much a Marvel boy. So and and you know, we can keep this towards comics, but I love the uh, American uh, artist, um, the uh the, of the 20th century, and so many people like you know Norman Rockwell, Dean Cornwell, you know Pratt, and just so many other people outside of the, the business but within the business. I was so taken by John Byrne at the time, and he was doing everything at Marvel more or less. Uh, and I was a huge Fantastic Four fan, and he had taken over the Fantastic Four book from the X Men book he was working on. So he, I, I didn't understand why he couldn't do every comic book. <laughs> at Marvel Comics because he was so good and I loved his work so much. Um Bernie Wrightson was a guy where you're like, wow, this guy doesn't do a lot, but he was somebody you had your eye on because his stuff was just different. He was I liked early on people who were exceptions to the rules. And you know, Jack Kirby might have been the rule and given that Jack Kirby was amazing and if you were emulating him that's fine too. But that style never really appealed to me. I mean, Jack's style appeals to me, but knockoffs didn't necessarily do that. So I was looking at people like Bernie Wrightson or um, Michael Golden, Alan Davis, who was coming up, you know, just so many people out there. And this was in the early days. You know, as we grow, I think just like musicians, it's very limited to say, no, I just listen to the Beatles and I don't listen to anybody else. You're like, but there's so much more music out there. You don't have to not listen to the Beatles. You can listen to other stuff, too. And that's how I am. I love other artists and other creators who come up that I can point out, you know, these guys are great or this guy really knows what he's doing. So I don't live myself, but I definitely had those influences growing up.
1: Did you ever trace any of their artwork or anything like
2: that? Oh, girl, you want me to tell some secrets now? <laughs> uh, I don't think any artist worth his weight will admit to tracing. <laughs> um but it's funny you say that. I did in high school. And yeah, when you're in high school, you you do. You you just do. But in high school, I was um I you know how it, well maybe you do, not know, but we had folders when we had to go to separate classes. <laughs> so I had an English folder and I had a math folder whatever. And on one of the folders, I remember tracing a Gil Kane image of um Adam Warlock and I just was so impressed with how it came out because Mm -hmm. it looked so anatomically correct. And if you know who Gil Kane is, the guy was just, the figure drawing was was like his mantra. And I was so impressed with the way it came out that I actually glued it to that cover folder and and really passed it off as my own. (laughs) But looking at it going, when I draw this, it looks nothing like this. Mm. But now that I've traced this, I f- I understood like, wow, okay, this isn't something I want to do, you know, trace, but this is a level of accomplishment that I really want to get to. And God willing, one day, hopefully, <laughs> I will get there. You know, some of us are merely passing through doing our work. These guys are going to be remembered for their work, and rightly so. So I don't have any humility about that. I, I, I don't have, or I should say, I don't have any ego about that. I do as you get older, you kind of understand your place in this machine. And everybody wants to be driving the machine and leading the machine and out front. And in all honesty, that just doesn't happen. That's not the case. And most of us kind of help the machine go along. And I understand as I got older, where my place is. That's not to say I don't, I'm not popular. Yeah, that I haven't had success because Buffy was a great success. But I do understand that I am no Jack Kirby. I am no Gil Kane. I'm no Neil Adams or Mobius or any of those guys. Those guys were the exception, not the rule.
1: Beautifully said. I'm sure one day someone will say that about you in a podcast. So I teach people how to use Apple products and um, I teach a class on how to use the Procreate app on the iPad with the Apple Pencil. So what I do is like trace over images and stuff. Um, I obviously haven't free drawn anything. So how often do you draw? How many hours a day?
2: Well, I'm old school, first of all. Uh, so I still draw on paper and, and all that that antiquated stuff. Uh, <laughs> I, and it's funny, the, the, the rub of all that. I have an iPencil. I have an iPad. I have... I have the Procreate program, I have everything I freaking need to do this and I I don't do it. I am so old school that everything I do and I do and I'm grateful that I work and and I can work but Drawing on paper is so easy and so quick for me that that's kind of my way of doing things. Whereas I understand everyone says, "Oh yeah, once you get the hang of this, this is really great, and you know you'll never go back, and it'll it'll improve production quality, you know, twenty, thirty percent, whatever." But I I just oh, man, I don't know if I'm just old at this point. Or- <laughs> You can't teach that dog new tricks or something, but it, it's a tough nut to crack. But I, I want to. It's like I've got everything in front of me. I guess I just need an able-bodied person like yourself to say, all right, here, this is what we're going to do. This is how you're going to do it. Boom.
1: How many hours a day do you draw? How much revision do you do once you draw something?
2: Uh, well, since I work at this, I draw pretty much like you go to work. You know, I if you say hypothetically, you go to a nine to five job. That's pretty much me. I get up, you know, I'm at work at nine. Well, I'm usually at work at eight o'clock at the very latest. And I work through till five, but more often probably seven or so. And I, I work longer hours, not because of the time it takes or the craft that it is, but because of how much I enjoy it. You know, you know, when you do music, you're sitting there and you're like, Oh my God, it's two o'clock in the morning. And you're going, where did all this time go? Because you love what you do. And A good friend of mine who's an actress, uh, she she really put it succinctly when we were talking about acting and and, you know, the ability and and how one role might be. Oh, my God, this is amazing. And the other role, you're like, "Eh, I don't know, this really isn't going to get any awards. And she (laughs) said very, very plainly, like, but if you're an actor, the love of it isn't necessarily the role. It's the acting actors Mm. act. And she was looking at me saying, and by extension, I assume artists draw. Like you just drawing is the fulfillment that you get. And I thought, God, yeah, I never really thought about that because everybody is always like, well, you know, I really want to draw Spider-Man or I really want to draw Batman. And then everything will be a lot of fun or it'll be great if I could just do that. And the truth is, if you're drawing, period. It, I mean, in theory, I know I, can't, I hate to say it. I know artists who I swear to God don't even like to draw. Why are you doing this? If you don't like what you're doing, how can you, how can, or treat it like a business? Like, nope, I stop at five o'clock and then I just walk away and don't do anything. I'm like, really? Well, what if you're like in a groove? Like, oh man, you're jamming. You just stop. I I don't get that. So Mm. my... I guess my accomplishments are from the passion of the thing. It's nece- certainly not for the paycheck because I could be doing something for a lot more money. Uh, <laughs> but it's it's more the, the passion for it. I love it because it's something, I it's not anything else I'd rather do than doing this. So, yeah, that passion there is, is more for me than it is <clears throat> for the profession.
1: And, and again, that's, that's a really good thing to have because I feel like so many people, they might find something they're passionate about and then like, Six months later, they're like, oh, I'm over this.
2: Yeah. And and I've loved it now because I've been in the business uh, in another couple of uh, a little over 25 years now.
1: All right. Uh, what are some of your favorite comic book characters?
2: Uh, Well, just being a comic book fan and I'm one of those guys, I will go to the shop like most Wednesdays because I can't wait for stuff to come out. You know, I love I love creators. I love artists. When I was younger, yes, it was the characters like I love The Thing or Fantastic Four or, you know, just a bunch of other guys. Like I said, I was a Marvel fan, so it was more Marvel stuff. But I was so into the characters and now I'm more into the creators. So Mm -hmm. if somebody I really like, like, you know, like a Grant Morrison or, or a Neil Gaiman or somebody is going to write something. I'm more likely to pick that up, not necessarily because of the subject matter, but because that person is doing it. And, um, you know, I love Love and Rockets. Jamie Herna- Jaime Hernandez uh, is really good. Um, there's something I'm, I'm reading now. It's called Eve Stranger. I actually just put it away. Um, and it's by a guy named Philip Bond, um, who used to do a lot of the Tank Girl fill-ins back in the day. Uh, so just people... Anything that catches my eye, you know, Mike Alred. Oh, you'll appreciate this, Mike Alred, who did Madman.
0: Mm.
2: Uh, I didn't realize this, but he put out a, a comic book essentially on David Bowie. I like Bowie and I, I love his music, but I picked it up more because I like Mike Alred's art. So, mm. a lot of what I pick up is due towards the creator these days, which is interesting because back in the day, when you were a kid, you didn't know who did what. You didn't right. know. Who- were and I think that maturity develops when you start to realize who drew this or who wrote this. Mm-hmm. This is who is this Alan Moore? This guy is really, really good. He's got a
1: future. You know, and then with Watchmen, cut to you know a feature film and now a TV show. So I'm waiting for my day. <laughs> what do you think is the most overrated comic? Whoa! See, I don't like to call out
2: people <laughs> because I have and. <laughs> this industry is so small. <laughs> it's really you'll you'll end up seeing these people at some point. And he's like, "Hey, man, I heard you talked about my book. Why did you
0: like <laughs> it? Um,
2: <laughs> overrated. Oh, uh, Oh, I hate to say it. I think a lot of that Marvel X Men just recently was very overrated. Uh-huh. Um, uh, the stuff they put out. The after I can't even remember most of it, but it just felt very much like they were putting this out. Obviously, we needed a summer thing or something and we needed a big, big uh, event and stuff like that. I'm very cool with events and, and relevance of things. But when it's appropriate, don't just say, all right, we're going to kill Scott Summers because that'll be a big event for the whole summer and, and we'll go from there. It's like, you know, there's comics and this is was something we we knew and we understood and we appreciated. it. Comics are soap operas, you know, very much like your soap opera, of Guiding Light or, or General Hospital or whatever you watch. This is what comics are. They are a serial and they must go on. So you can create an event within that. But don't just say, you know, I'm going to kill Luke and Laura because they're so popular and everybody will watch that episode if I do <laughs> um, that. Being characters from General Hospital back in the eighties, uh, but it was it was something where you understood this is a. Ser- I'm here for the long haul, and I think a lot of publishers and creators now are doing things for the immediate uh, immediacy of it is not the long haul. And I'm still a reader, and I still love comics, and I'm still in for the long haul. But so much of comic books now is not serialized anymore, or for that long haul.
1: So we're moving on to some Buffy questions. Finally. I know. <laughs> and obviously, Georges, I'm sure you know, Joss Whedon currently working on a new TV show for HBO called The Nevers. It was supposed to come out uh, sooner rather than later. So that's why we created this podcast And now, since it's been pushed back, that's why we're having episodes that have to do with the Buffyverse. We just interviewed Timo Pennekit from Dollhouse the other day. Funny,
2: too, you know, because, yeah, obviously he was a star of Dollhouse or one of the stars of Dollhouse. And I have never met, no, that's not true. I've met a couple of people, but he is one of those cats. And I don't know if you've ever been in his company or even when you watch Dollhouse, you can tell he is one of those dudes, he has a swagger. And I don't think it's it's premeditated. The guy just has when he walks, he walks with this swagger (laughs) and you just don't see a whole lot of people do. I saw, you know, maybe Jeff Goldblum when he was a little younger, but. You don't see people walk like that anymore. And I was (laughs) like, damn, dude, I'm impressed. You got this swagger about you. And that term is so overused, but you actually
1: have it. Right, (laughs) right. All right. So first Buffy question, probably one that I've asked you a million times. How did you get the Buffy gig? Oh,
2: man. Well, hey, I'd be interested to hear what I told you. Right. (laughs) This, and I always say, this story makes me sound better than it should because (laughs) I had no no input in this at all. I didn't have to do anything to get the Buffy gig. And I know that makes people so jealous, and I'm sorry. But the truth being what it is, you know, Joss obviously is a huge comic book fan, as you well know. And uh, at the time that he was considering doing season eight and he brought it, you know, Dark Horse had already been publishing Buffy for years at that point but they had never done anything that was considered canon per se. And of course, when Joss brought them the idea of, Hey, let's not only make it canon, let's make it season eight. uh, They were off and running and they were basically saying, you know, here, Joss, because technically Joss had never written any Buffy before he had done season eight. He did do some tales of the vampire, but he never actually wrote Buffy before season eight. And, Dark Horse, Scott Alley, of course, was just so, who was the editor at the time, he was so interested in saying, yes, whatever you want to do, just tell me and I will make sure it happens. We'll make sure it gets together. He's like, I am the ringleader here. You just tell me what to do. You perform and I will make sure I'll give you the platform to do that. And so when they were doing it and they were picking people, Joss was like, here, I don't know this guy, but I like this comic that I've been reading called The American Way. And uh, let's see if maybe we can get him. I think he would be a right choice for Buffy. And they reached out to me and Scott was sent me an email. He's like, hey, I don't know you, but I've been uh, having a conversation with Joss Whedon. I don't know if you know who he is, but we really like your work. And he thinks you might do really well with this uh, new series we want to do. And of course, you know, if you ever got an email like that out of the blue, I mean, your first impression is, yeah, yeah right, whatever. I don't believe you. And unfortunately, that did go back and forth a few times of me going, dude, why are you using this guy's name when you know he he could care less about me or he could care less about what I've done? And Scott was very patient and
1: adamant. No,
2: dude, this is for real. This is, I swear, Joss Whedon wants you to do this, uh, wants you to do this book. And of course, you know, you have to call somebody's bluff at some point. And you're like, well, if that's the case, why don't you get Joss Whedon to send me an email, tough guy? (laughs) <laughs> and the very next email was Josh Wheaton <laughs> saying, hey, I love your work. I want your work. And man, <laughs> after eating a lot of humble pie, I, uh, of course, agreed to uh, do the book and be on it and do whatever, because it, while I had never really seen an episode, I was familiar with Buffy as a sense of pop culture. Everybody kind of knows Buffy if you're into this sort of thing, even though you've never maybe seen the TV show. But I was very aware of it and I had the wherewithal to say, yes, I could have easily I was actually up for a, a Flash series at the time. And to Scott's credit, he really talked me out of it because I thought Flash is going to be a lot more popular than Buffy. Mm. I don't see how I should do this. And he's like, trust me. And he, actually, Scott, he was very profound and I don't think he meant to be, but he's like, here, this is what's going to happen you're going to do the flash. If you don't take this gig, you're going to do the flash and you're not ever going to be remembered for it because so many people have done the flash that you will just get lost in that you do Buffy. You're going to be remembered for doing Buffy. And of course, when you're, you know, at the beginning of something, you're kind of like, yeah, right, whatever. I don't, I don't think <laughs> that. And sure enough here now, what 12, 13, 14 years later, I am still remembered for this book that, you know, I probably would never have taken had it not been for Scott Alley and Joss's insistence. So I am forever, forever grateful for that. And and as, as a result, I'm twofold because I personally became a fan. As you well know, I can hang with the most rabid of Buffy fans because I am right there. I have seen every episode and all the Angel episodes and everything. So now I can speak amongst my people, and we can talk our language. It may not be Klingon.
1: Actually, talking about that, what's really cool for you is that you're a huge fan, but you also get to be in panels with these inverse actors. So you're kind of on both sides. And ironically, you wanted to be an actor. Well, now you get to sit with them and <laughs> be in panels, do you know?
2: Well, it's funny, too, because a lot of the actors, you know, and the, the
1: actors are actors. A lot of them may not be comic fans. And you don't have
2: to be. There's no reason you have to be a comic fan, even though it's the the, the soup du jour or the, the topic du jour at the moment. But and a lot of them I've noticed, too, a lot of some of them that I've sat on panels with, of course, didn't know me because they're not comic fans. And they're kind of like, who is this guy? And then when introductions get happening, everyone is always like, oh, man, really? You do the comics? Like, that's (laughs) their kind of, oh, wow. So that is so cool because they meet actors all day.
1: Right. Very
2: few of them meet comic artists. And the fact that now we have a shared bond uh, to this. And for a while there, I was probably a little more relevant because I was only doing I was doing stuff that was considered canon so I was doing all the new stuff you know everybody associated with Buffy could only aside from the writers who were writing the comic book could only proclaim to have done stuff in the past I was the only one and the same with Serenity I was the only Mm -hmm. one doing stuff in the future and everybody was very interested in that like so where did my character go (laughs) well well, what happened here I don't do as many panels today but it every time I do I, I like it and I look forward to it because I I, I do. I'm still a fan of the medium.
1: I was going to say, I hope you get a panel at San Diego Comic-Con, but who knows if that's going to (laughs) happen.
2: Oh, it's been a while, too, since I've been there.
1: (laughs) Uh, George's was a, what do they call it, a featured guest? I was a featured (laughs) guest at San Diego Comic-Con, ooh,
2: 2015, 2016? No, probably 2014, 15. And, I mean, they paid for everything, the hotel. I was right next to it. All I had to do was take a short 15-minute walk over to the to the uh, hall, and I had a couple of panels, and they gave me a table, and that was it. And I'm like, wow, I never have to come back here again. Because it will <laughs> never be as good as it is right now.
1: This goes without saying, this next question, but was there pressure creating for an already established and beloved IP? Yeah,
2: all, all the time. And I always say that drawing the Buffy comic, Always took me about 30 percent longer Mm. because, you know, when you draw Batman or when you draw Spider-Man, that's your interpretation of that character. Bruce Wayne is who you want Bruce Wayne to look like. You can say he looks like Ben Affleck or, you know, or somebody or that Superman looks like Christopher Reeve, but you get to draw your version of Superman or Batman. With Buffy, of course, these characters were established. They have real life counterparts, and I had to adhere as much as I could to that. And in the beginning, I I was always telling Joss and Scott that, man, I I don't think I'm very good at likenesses. I am not. I don't know that I'm a good fit for this because I don't. In my career, I've never really done likenesses. And Joss, to his credit, again, everybody was so hindsight being what it is, everybody was so smart about what they were doing. Josh said to me, all right, here's the thing. I'm not interested in Buffy looking like Sarah Michelle Geller as much as she looks like Buffy. You make her look like Buffy and then people will equate Sarah Michelle Gellar to her. And I was like, whoa, that is intense. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so from there, And he was very serious about, I don't want this to look like photographs. I don't Mm -hmm. want every panel to look like, oh, that was a photograph from this episode or that episode. Like you see a lot of Star Wars stuff in that. Um, He was very adamant about, I want them to move. I want them to to look like they have a life of their own. And probably the greatest compliment Joss ever gave to me um, was when he started seeing uh, the the first uh, things coming in. And we were doing the first issue and he just wrote me a little note and said, Georges, she breathes because oh. of you.
1: And oh, i like,
2: seriously? <laughs> I know.
1: Oh, I my God.
0: Cool.
2: Yeah, so he was just... And again, you want to make these people happy. Like, you, you want, since you're in service and this is your job, you want to make them happy. And it was very important that I made Joss happy because I know he was the first and last word of Buffy. Like 20th Century Fox, who was publishing it, and Dark Horse, they could offer suggestions, but everybody knew if Joss said it was okay,
0: mm. then
2: it's okay. I didn't have to go through this person, that person or corporate or whatever. All I had to do was have a yes from Joss and I knew I was, I was good. I could keep doing whatever I was doing.
1: Man, getting a yes from Joss, not a lot of people could say that working with him. It's so cool.
2: Well, of course, he had his vision. And, you know, sometimes I was very conscious of not trying to give him my vision, but the vision I thought he wanted in comic books. And that was a very and that's a very telling thing that was, I was very conscious of that. I wasn't trying to break out and do what I want to do. I was really conscious of saying I am working for Joss Wheaton. I want to give Joss Wheaton what I think he wants. Which really served me well because early on, and now, you know, Joss wrote the first arc and then many arcs afterwards, but he wrote the first arc. And you can tell in those first few scripts that I got, they were very heavy in description. Like this happens, this happens, this, happens, you know, and it was just very. And then the last few were kind of sparse. Mm. And I'm going, oh man, is this guy just losing interest? Does he not <laughs> care about it anymore? Why are the scripts less. Dense than they were before, and I, I asked him. You know, I, I emailed him once about it. I'm like, Josh, so what? Did I do something wrong? Are you just not happy? He's like, No, you you get it. I don't have to keep drilling it into your head. You get it. All I have to say is this now, instead of this, this, and this, and you get it. And I was like, Oh, okay, great, thank you. Wow. I was like, All right, if that's the case, and I was. <laughs>
1: Oh, my God, that's amazing. Because in a way, in a way, like you said, since the actors aren't playing these roles anymore, it's really you as an artist that are bringing them to life, almost like an actor would just with art. So that's that's really cool for just to say, oh, you get it.
2: The weight of what he said wasn't lost or minimized on me because I totally took it to heart. And you know how you can do something and get cocky and go, whatever, you know, hey, hey babe, me and Joss, this is just me and Joss. Now I do what I do, he does what he does, and we go along. I was conscious, I can say this without any hesitation, that all through my, off and on, I did Buffy for 10 years. All through my working on Buffy, I was conscious that I had to keep that same level of consistency that I had when Joss first hired me in that first series for all of those ten years. And that extended to the Serenity stuff as well. I was equally as conscious that this was a live thing that I had to reference, not that I could just do whatever I wanted.
1: Yeah, and it's cool. I remember you always telling me that you would watch you would watch Buffy and Firefly and have it in the background when you're drawing. I thought that's awesome. And you could tell.
2: Yeah, there is a mood. There is a feel and there's a mood with mm-hmm. when and if you're doing it right. It comes through. And if you're doing it wrong, unfortunately, that comes through, too. But there are times in the comic book, and I know we've talked about this, where I would put certain scenes up against anything on the TV episodes in, in the comic books, because there was a not obviously live action is so much better. I agree with you. But the mood and the, the, mm. the effect you're creating in some of those cases, they were just dead on. And these writers were great at what they were doing that I was like, this is just like the TV show, in all honesty. The impact I'm getting is the same as I got from the TV show.
1: I completely agree. So have you ever met Joss in person? I know you guys talked a lot on the phone and through email.
2: Yeah, well, I know you guys met Joss. Yes,
1: yes. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Um, Yeah, actually, uh, at the beginning, Joss is really big on... You know, kind of at the beginning, really wanting to get a feel for I think he's very much a feel kind of a guy like, oh, let me get a feel for this. Let me see how this feels. And we had um, the first time I met him, I'd gotten the gig and San Diego Comic-Con was coming around and we all had a breakfast, me, Joss, Mm. uh, Sierra Han and Scott Alley all had a, a nice, nice breakfast and we were just talking and talking and it was obvious he was trying to get to know me. And then we later, maybe a year or so later, we saw each other at the New York show and we had a dinner afterwards as well. And uh, there were a couple times in LA, you know, where we were just at same the same events. So, you know, I'm one of those guys who I was just happy he remembered me. You know, <laughs> like, oh, I'm happy remember he said, Dude, how could I not forget you? We did Buffy. I will always remember that. And, you know, like I, 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 I still have your page hanging up in my uh, my room in my wow. cabinet, whatever. So it's uh, it's one of those. Yeah, he's. Uh, I haven't talked to him much these days because, of course, he's not doing any of this stuff. But you know, I'm I'm always thinking that if and when he does or this comes up, that he remembers me fondly.
1: Of course, of course. Um, all right. So, do you have a favorite character to draw in the Buffy comics?
2: I have been asked that question often and <laughs> with due diligence. Uh, I I've always said that, you know, I love faith. I loved it. I've always thought she was an underrated character and mm-hmm. any of you people out there who haven't read the comics and love faith, I urge you to do so because we, we probably got more into faith in the comic books than the TV show or angel ever really delved into. Um, but as as a common rule i like to say i i i would choose to pick the girl that i came with to the dance and that's <laughs> been buffy for all those years and if asked i'm always saying probably buffy because she's the pro she's the one i had to draw the most mm-hmm. in all of those years that's the face i've drawn the most and. It has been an absolute joy to look at Sarah Michelle Geller for ten years. <laughs> and have to draw that face because uh, you know she is gorgeous.
1: She's absolutely gorgeous. Um, Even I'm... today,
2: I follow her on Instagram, and she's still oh, yeah. the cutest damn thing. Oh my Yep,
1: God. <laughs> I completely agree. And I, I I've met her a few times. In you told my... me. I know. Yeah. At, uh, I, I at Apple. Yep, yep. And and I actually recently met her. I think it was last year. And and it's just it's just so difficult because I'm helping her with her <laughs> Apple product, you know, and she's obviously just treating me like a normal person. And then at the end of the conversation, this was yeah last year, I was like, also, I just have to say, I'm a huge Buffy fan. It's the best thing ever, and she literally kissed me on my head, <laughs> and I was like, I- I'm blessed. Buffy blessed me. I'm fine.
2: (laughs) Well, tell that story. Isn't this a story you guys tell? Tell that because that's a great story where, you know, she's like afterwards everything and she's like, let me just go put my stuff away and I'll come back and take pictures.
1: Well, yes, it's crazy because that was the first time we met her. I've met her twice, which I'm very lucky to say. But the first time she just happened to come in and my sister was wearing a Buffy shirt that day, but she was, you know, we're wearing our work attire. So she obviously didn't have the Buffy shirt on, but Sarah Michelle Gellar was like, oh, I, I have to leave. And my sister's like, okay, is there any way I could take a picture with you? And she's like, oh yeah, yeah, but I'm definitely coming back. And you know, in our heads, we're like, well, she's not coming back, but it's nice that she said yes to taking a picture. Um, So just in case she came back, uh, my sister changed into her Buffy shirt and then she did come back And so my sister literally has a picture of Sarah Michelle Gellar wearing a Buffy shirt. And Sarah Michelle Gellar is like pointing at it, which is crazy.
2: That is, that's such a cool story. Because that's where you understand she has embraced. I know there are probably years where she was like, oh my God, if I hear another Buffy in my life scream. But that suggests that, you know, this is somebody who's embraced this. Has really accepted it. And that's a cool thing. Because you want that. Because you love her so much. You want that person to be of that love as well. And she may or may not but those acts of kindness, I think, speak volumes.
1: Exactly. And honestly, as you've probably seen on Instagram, she's always talking about Buffy. And so I definitely feel like she's embraced it a lot more.
2: Well, that's why. Because I, like I said, you get to a certain age and you do have to embrace it. Because <laughs> you look at it now, and I'm sure she does, and she looks at it like, Wow! Look at that little girl. Look at that. She's just a baby. Look at that on on the episodes. It, it's sort of you become a detached,
1: right?
0: It's not right. really
2: you you're looking at anymore because of course yeah. you're 20, 30 years older. But you're going, oh, I can appreciate that girl on screen who's fighting vampires and understand that it's me. But there's a detachment there that you can embrace. Going, oh, that was she was a really cute girl back in the day, or
1: right? Like that. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, love her. Can you remember the hardest character who is the hardest character to draw?
2: Oh, uh, by extension, it's always the women, because in, in drawing, there's this little rule that the more lines you put into a face, the the harder it gets. Like and I mean harder, like rough. Mm. And if you were to take a beautiful woman and put a lot of lines in her face, she's gonna look because she's got all these lines in her face. The guys, you can put as many lines as you want, it won't really matter. But with women, you have to, and certain artists can do this and do it amazingly well. But with women, you have to choose those very few lines to Mm. interpret who that is or the gesture of what they're doing. And it was so hard for, because, of course, I mean, if you took out the lineup of all the Buffy women who have even appeared on the episode. Nine times out of ten, they're gorgeous, or they're at least extremely beautiful or pretty. And that is very difficult to draw and to get the likeness, because then you're going, well, I could just draw a pretty face, but then that's a generic pretty face that I'm putting to every face. So the hardest part was drawing the women and keeping them at an attractive level while sustaining their particular look and character. So that was always I still struggle with that today.
1: Wow. That's really interesting about the the when you draw women characters, they have less lines. It's not a, it's not a sexist thing
2: at all. <laughs> Just men are harder. You know, men have definition men and, and you're generalizing. Sure. But I mean, I look at you and I look at you as a very pretty girl. And if I were to interpret you on the page, I would take those certain lines that you have. And of course, everybody has more lines in real life. But I would take the certain lines to keep that level of attractiveness that I already see in you. Not that I'm trying to create an attractive girl when it comes to Gina. I'm just trying to bring out that attractive girl that I see with as few lines as possible.
1: Um, What do you think of the new Boom Buffy comics? Have you read them?
2: I did. I picked them up when they started coming out. And I, I understood the reboot aspect and I understood the... It's, it's updated, because now Buffy's in high school again, and she's got cell phones and computers and all of that stuff. And that's great. I I mean, I'm not as... Mar- and again, I'm maybe too close to the subject matter mm. to speak objectively, but it it's very much like Doctor Who, I feel. A lot of this new Doctor Who is great, but a lot of it, too, I feel is not my Doctor Who.
1: Right. Whereas,
2: you know, everybody has their period of Doctor Who, and I'm a little older than you, so... My period probably stretches a little further back, and the same with Buffy, I feel like this isn't my buffy. You know my buffy was back when I was doing it and back when in the day. I can appreciate what they have coming out, but this is sort of a buffy 2.0 that isn't necessarily geared towards me. I, I wish them success and, and popularity, but I think it would be because of a new audience, not necessarily right. Old diehard Buffy fans.
1: Yeah, I, I honestly look at it as a an alternative universe fanfic that's drawn really well. You know, <laughs> so the Nevers podcast has a Patreon. This question comes from one of our Patreon supporters. It's at Berger Bowie on Twitter, talking about Bowie earlier. Um, his question is: How much freedom do you have to create the visual side of the story yourself?
2: Usually, you're, you're left pretty open. Um, if you're drawing, like, you know, the Avengers, and you have to draw the Avengers Tower, well, of course, that's been established. So, yeah, you kind of have to draw the way it looks like in a uniform sense that everybody's done it. Um, the beauty about Buffy when I was doing that, um, well, one, because Sunnydale was gone, of course, because at the end of Season 7, it's decimated. Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> so that left me with, I could you know, draw where she lives, I drew where they went. Everything was left up to me. And again, having Joss as the last word, I was able to create to my heart's content because I didn't have to adhere towards a established format that was already there. Unlike Serenity. Serenity, I had to adhere to everything that you had seen, mm. because in Serenity, of course, as an unspoken thing, but the ship is the ninth or 10th character. You know, everybody who watches that show or watch the movie can tell where everything is. If you're in the cockpit, you know where you are. If you're in the mess hall, if you're in the, uh, down where the, the cargo hold, you know, where these things are. You may not know how to get there, but you know that when you see them. And when I was drawing that book, Oh my God, it was so hard because mm. If you'll notice, the movie and the TV show, the ship, is subtly different. There are subtle differences in both the ships, in both those uh, interpretations. And I got the pleasure of picking and choosing what I wanted. But, man, everywhere they went, I had to be conscious of, okay, well, where is this? Where is this on the I even bought. One of those little serenity ship models that had a little die cut open where you could see where things were and i brought the blueprints just to see where everything was not because mm. they told me to right but because i'm such a uh i'm such a completist in that sense where <laughs> i was like no no i need to know where they are so doing that and funny when i got the blueprints a uh, sidebar but when i got the blueprints to the uh serenity i noticed that there were places on that ship that we had never been in the in the uh, TV show and I always wanted to make it a personal uh thing of mine to oh let me see if I can sneak this in that maybe they're here or maybe they're here whereas they had never been there in the um in the TV show or the movie so I never really got the chance unfortunately because I only got to do two of the the series but had I been on there longer I would have really tried to draw places on the ship you never saw
1: oh man that would have been cool um, what is your process once you receive a new script?
2: Uh, well, of course, you, you read it. And uh, I'm one of those things. I was really lucky, and, and since you're a Buffy fan, I, I'm just using Buffy as an example, since I know you know that reference. But it was really great to get Buffy scripts because I realized I was like the first, I was like Ooh. one of maybe two or three people who actually read this right then and there. And so I was like so ahead of the curve with everybody thinking, Oh man, I got a new script from Drew Goddard or from, you know, somebody else. Uh, And it was, it was great to read. So the first, I would read something once for the enjoyment. Mm. Then I read it again for the, for the, the nuts and bolts of it. Like what's the process here? What's going on? You know, what page count or is this going to fit onto a panel? And then I read it again and make little notes. What am I going to need? Or is this something I should talk to the writer about? Should I ask Joss? hey, I noticed you put six panels here, but I can actually do it in four panels. Would that be better? Or do you care? You know, are you trying to pace this differently? So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I'll give the script a good three or four readings. And then I'll always have it next to me. But after that third or so time, I will have done little thumbnail sketches. And I will make those sketches as detailed as possible and write down everything Mm -hmm. I need, like, You know, we are not that I ever was, but, you know, we're in the uh, the bronze and and they're next to the uh, bowling or I'm sorry, the billiard table and they're playing a game and there are balls on the table. You know, all these little things I really try to be as detailed as possible with. And that's how I approach it. And then finally, when I do, I start to sketch each page. I will I do that more for the flow of the thing and. You know, I'll see how that I'll do it maybe in like four by three inches, very small, but I'll see how that flow goes. And again, that's where if I need to talk to the writer and say, hey, I've been laying this out because most writers are very generous and they say, look, these are the words you are in charge of the pictures. If when you do the pictures, this doesn't ring true. Let me know and we can talk about it. But I will defer to you because I know Looking at this and reading it are two different things. So everybody was very generous to let me as the artist um, have not necessarily the last word, but really have an influence as here. Visually, I think this works better type of a thing. Not that it happens often.
1: Does it take? Yeah. How long does it take to? (laughs) when you get a script how long does it take like from beginning to end
2: usually and this is again this becomes a job because it's great that hey I got a new script from Joss Whedon oh my god I'm geeking out but after you geek out you kind of got to say okay now it's a job now I actually have to say how do I Joss Whedon just sent me a 22 page script now I have to interpret that script into a visual medium whereas you know his words are beautiful and they ring true and the dialogue is so authentic Now I have to visually interpret what he's done. Mm -hmm. So as a job, like I said, I do this every day, you know, a good nine hours or so. They give you usually about 28 days to do a 22-page comic book. And I'm generalizing, but Mm -hmm. more or less, that's how the the deadlines are. 22 pages to do a, or 28 days to do a 22-page comic book. And usually that can break down to about a page a day. So I tell people who want to break into the business, if you can do a page a day, you're probably doing pretty good because that's more or less what your deadlines are going to be like.
1: Wow. To me, that seems like impossible, (laughs) you
2: know? Well, yeah, sure. But, you know, when you do music, I'm always like, how do you create a new song? You know, how do you Mm. think of the lyrics? How do you think of the bridge and and the connection and bringing in the harmony? You know, all of these things are a thought process after the fact, you know, and The thing of it is, and I think that the worst thing about people who love movies is that we get to see it finished. We never get to see it being made because, quite frankly, like, you know, Avengers Endgame. It took them, what, six months, a year to make it. And I have to tell you, if I were there on set every day, that probably would get boring. I would probably just go, look, I just want to see it finished. Show it to me when (laughs) it's finished, just like a song. Let me just listen to it when it's done. And just like a comic book most people just want to sit and read it and look at it. And that is the burden of the people who create. We right. have to take the time and actually go through all of that process so we can get to a point. So most people can read <laughs> it for like five minutes or listen to a three minute song or watch a two hour movie and go, eh, that was okay. Whatever. You know, it's, <laughs> it's a very humbling thing. And, and I oh, think yeah. that's, I I feel that nobody starts out to do something bad. Like nobody starts out to make a bad movie or make a bad book or make a bad song. But, you know, sometimes you lose it along the way or or just the general opinion isn't there. And it's a crapshoot, you know, because Mm -hmm. there was a lot of, there was a lot of great stuff about Buffy and there was a lot of criticism about Buffy. And I think both were justified.
1: What has been your proudest moment so far as an artist? Well, I
2: mean, again, if, if, if Buffy, and I, it's funny, I remember, I remember and you're a musician and you'll appreciate this, but I remember, I love Stevie Wonder, and I remember reading an interview with him, and, you know, everybody, in his 20s, I hate to say this, but he probably did, and most artists probably did the most prolific things they've ever done in their 20s, you know, and somebody asked him, you know, well, what's the uh, what's the best thing you, you're, you're most proud of? And he always answered, and I thought that was a smart answer, it's like the thing that I haven't done yet the thing that's around the corner <laughs> the next big thing that's coming you know i think it's it's history will say what our crowning achievements are and that's great for them but personally mm. it's usually never what we did it's always what we're going to do and while i i love buffy and if i'm remembered for buffy and that's it then you know i'm not going to complain but i'm always thinking I've got so much stuff I want to do that hasn't come out. I feel like that's my best stuff Mm. that's still coming out. Like you could say, oh, our best songs are still the ones we haven't written.
1: Right. Um, Do you have a bucket list of writers whose works you would like to help bring to life? Kind of going off what you said.
2: Yeah, like comic writers. I would love to. Well, Alan Moore has become a little, I don't know know where (laughs) his head is these days. Right. I (laughs) love to work with Alan Moore. And I, I like Neil Gaiman. I like Neil Gaiman for the most part. I think if Neil Gaiman can be a little more abridged, his stuff can be a lot better. But I love seeing his stuff like when somebody like P. Craig Russell illustrates it because it it has that flow and that theatrical feel that I personally like in certain comics. I don't think all comics have to be that way, but I would love to work with him. And, yeah, anybody that's good and and out there and new, I mean – A lot. I had the great pleasure of working with so many of the Buffy writers on Buffy Mm. that honestly, I was spoiled for a long time because these guys weren't comic artists, but they were A-list writers and they were bringing their A-game all the time, even to this comic book. So I was very spoiled for a very long time when I was working on that. Jane was probably the best breakout one because she had never done comics and she took to it. She really liked it. She like, wow, this is great. I mean, Josh used to talk about it all the time when we were in the in the the writers' room, but I'm actually drawing now or writing comics now and this is great. So she really took to it and consequently was probably the uh writer who wrote most the more of the Buffy stuff. Right,
1: right. What outside of comics inspires you? I mean, just just that creativity
2: always, you know, I think it's it's a very it's a very sad and ego thing. If somebody is like, no, I don't listen to other music. If I'm a musician, I don't listen to other music or if I'm a, an actor, I don't look at other people acting or if I'm an artist, I don't look at other people's art. I love the entertainment industry and and the, and that extends to drama and dance and, and, you know, everything, music, all of that. And I often feel inspired if something is good and, and I like it, it inspires me. It may not inspire me right away or in an mm. obvious way, but I always feel if you like something and something is good and you know, cause you, you write as well. And I'm sure when you're writing, sometimes things will come into your head and you're like, Oh my God, I didn't realize that. But then you think about it and like, Oh, that's right. We went to this thing the other night and that's probably where that idea came from, mm. but it felt yeah. like it came from nowhere. But I think subconsciously you were being inspired by something And I'm always that's why I never try to limit myself by by not doing something or not trying to do something, because that's where inspiration comes from. You know, I don't. Very few of us are Mozart, where, you know, people argue that he was just taking dictation and he wasn't (laughs) making music. It was just music was making him essentially. And that's fine. But again, these guys are the exception, not the rule for the rest of us working schmoes. We really have to struggle sometimes to find that inspiration. But I think if you allow your muse, and Stephen King did a really nice little bit about this. He he used to say that he would set up the cellar and he would make it all nice and pretty and and put the TV (laughs) and the seat and the best elements in this cellar for his muse, which was this little ogre kind of a guy to come in and sit. And be as comfortable as possible so that he could give him the great ideas that he gets. (laughs) And he was like, well, do you think that's fair? He's like, I do. This guy's giving me million dollar ideas. All I have to do is set up a place where he can come in and be inspired. Mm. And I do feel that about everyday life. When we as creators go around, we have to be open to that inspiration wherever it is, because we won't always know wherever it
1: is. Yeah. That's such a great answer. Something similar, I'm sure we've told you. Me and my sister went to London about five years ago now. We're obsessed with the BBC Sherlock. We wanted to see all these filming locations, and we've always wanted to go to London. But we saw you know, Vincent van Gogh paintings, the sunflowers. Then we saw Paul Gauguin paintings, and that made us think we want to write a first screenplay about Vincent van Gogh and the nine weeks he spent with Paul Gauguin and how it, it started with them being acquaintances to them becoming so bad that Vincent cut his ear off. And that that has gotten us into this whole world of screenwriting and like filmmaking. And it's crazy, like you said, if we just kind of, if we were cut off and not open to the world of even traveling or going to a museum, we would have never got launched into this whole other world of, of writing. So it's, it's cool as an artist just to stay open, you know?
2: And that's where the serendipity of creativity comes in. And I do believe that to be the case. I don't feel you should limit yourself by any means because you could somebody could hear that story and they could argue to you. That's not true. You were just a Doctor Who fan and you really like that Doctor Who episode they did on Van Gogh. And that's (laughs) where you started writing. And you're like, no, you're right. I do like Doctor Who and I do like Van Gogh. But we went to England and that idea came around as a result of this. So the idea that you're being inspired, and this is where I say sometimes it's not as obvious as you think, you're like, yeah, I'm I'm into Doctor Who, but that episode honestly didn't inspire me. That episode encouraged me to keep going with the inspiration, but not inspire per se. And that's where I say, you don't know where these things come from. So you have to expose yourself to everything, because while it may seem closely related, at that time, it may be a thousand miles away in another country.
1: Yeah, I love that. Okay. Final question, and I think I know the answer to this, and I think we're going to agree on this. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Marvel or DC? Oh,
2: and it's unfair because funny <laughs> enough, I did a lot of work for DC in my career as well, and it, there is no flack against them whatsoever. I just, when I was a kid, man, I grew up with Marvel. I was such a hard Marvel fan that I don't think I ever read D.C. because I was such a I can tell you the first time I started reading D.C. regularly was when uh, Marv Wolfman and George Perez were doing the Teen Titans. And that was my experience on D.C. So I was hugely Marvel. So make mine Marvel true believer.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Lisa and I, when we saw Sam Raimi's Spider-Man, that's what got us into the comic book world. And like we were reading Spider-Man comics. And yeah. So Marvel all the way.
2: (laughs) Now, when you're an adult, you can go back and forth, of course. Of
1: course. Um, Before we officially wrap, uh, is there any projects that you're currently working on that you would like to promote? Uh, Yeah,
2: actually, I just finished up a Captain America Avengers one-shot that's out on the stands now. Although, with all of this, I'm sure a lot of you aren't going out to the comic shops. Um, (laughs) I have a website. It's uh, www.com. K A B A L O U N G K-A-B-A-L-O-U-N-G.com, where you can find out everything that's going on with me, Instagram, Facebook, all of that stuff. And I'm working on a five-issue limited series for a smaller company, uh, Actorshock. Uh, it's called uh, Shadow Doctor, and it's about a doctor in the 30s who was working for Al Capone. Uh, so hopefully that'll be out later in the year. Cool.
1: And, uh, once again, I'm Gina. You can find me on Twitter at Gina Gemini. I spell Gemini, G E M E N I. And you can also, uh, follow our podcast and our Twitter account at HBO The Nevers. And we also have The Nevers Podcast as a Twitter account as well. Um, once again, thank you so much for taking out the time, Georges. It's really nice of you. I know the world is like ending. So it's nice to, <laughs> it's nice for us to also connect as friends. So thank you so much for, joining us it was very insightful
2: i'm glad we could talk before it's all over
1: (laughs) (laughs) and thank you listeners for listening to once again the nevers podcast
0: this episode was written and produced by gina gomez and matthew yamanashi the intro and outro music was produced by Gilirme Morais. We are more than just a podcast; we're a fan community. You can keep up to date on The Nevers and chat with other fans by visiting HBOTheNevers.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Just search HBO The Nevers, all one word, and click that follow button. The Nevers podcast is not endorsed by Mutant Enemy warner media entertainment or any of its subsidiaries including home box office hbo and is intended for entertainment and educational purposes only the nevers and all names pictures and audio clips are registered trademarks and or copyrights of their respective copyright holders they're coming are you ready